Hello, I'm Stephanie Luo. Welcome to Surface Time: Confessions of a Diving Junkie, where I chinwag with people who are like me, scuba diver and chronic addict to being underwater. During the Surface Time today, I Skype met up with the dynamic trio from South China Diving Club in Hong Kong: Rob Christie, Alex Grioni, and Andy Niban. All of us shared a special memorable dive trip to Timor Leste back in 2010. All three of them have since returned for a second visit. It just felt right to reminisce the first trip and hear their stories on their return visit to that country. Just a quick caveat. Yet. These threes have known each other for a very long time. They can literally finish the other's sentences. So this is what happened when an American, an Italian, and a Scot are in the same room. First, there will be alcohol flowing, and then it will feel like the meeting of the orderly chaos department. Feel free to pour yourself a glass of wine as you listen on. Do we look younger than last time you saw us? I think it's the filter of your Skype screen, camera, whatever you're using. So yeah, definitely. We don't definitely look better. <laughs> it's okay. When we start drinking, I'm gonna have a go. Oh my god! No truth. I don't have alcoholic drink, but I have this kombucha. The cheers to you guys. Oh, uh, cheers! 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 Yeah, that's nice. Apart from not traveling and apart from the, all the government regulations and stuff is all right. Yeah. I was anti-social to begin with, so no big deal, but it is traveling. So I know that you guys being part of the South China Diving Club and you pretty much managed to keep up with your diving activity to a certain extent. Where was your last memorable dive? Actually, probably Timor, East Timor for me. Yeah. Do you mean in Hong Kong or do you mean overseas? Hong Kong <laughs> last weekend. <laughs> yeah. Actually, diving in Hong Kong just recently in the last few months, actually, through COVID, because we had to dive in Hong Kong. We've had some really brilliant dives here. And the visibility just last week, the week before, was really good. Yeah, that was great this. And we've seen more fish and a lot more soft coral. Yeah, there's actually quite a difference from the way it was even three or four years ago. And why that is, we all have speculation. It could be a variety of fewer ships going through the harbor, the ban on trawling, fishing. Yeah, it's hard to tell exactly, but the visibility is certainly better. And there, last weekend, gosh, the number of small fish was dense together. And also just different fish. We, we found like, exotic. Yeah, we found like over the course of maybe 10 or 15 years, we found one frog fish and now we find frog fish all the time. Wow. That's an improvement. Just out of curiosity, which site that you've been to in Hong Kong that you would consider that as, oh, that's a really good dive site, just uh, in comparison to the overseas ones? There are quite, quite few. It depends on the day. Yeah. And whatever. It's not just one, but there are quite few that are remarkably good. Basel Island is becoming one of the most popular, but then if you go far out and what foot rock and all those in pinnacles, those are always nice, no matter what the visibility is. Nine pins, nine pins, yes. the high island reservoir dam. Those are quite yeah. very good sites. They've always been good and they will always be good probably until they get trashed by all the divers. Stuff. That's nice. I actually did all my training dives in Hong Kong, so I'm familiar with the water there. I do actually, to a certain extent, miss it because the choices of dive site in Singapore are so limited. 
So there you go. Did you ever go back to Timor from Singapore? There was direct flight. No, I've never made back to Timor. So I think among the four of us, the one memorable dive trip that we shared is Timor Leste that we went in 2010. Yeah, should we talk about that one? Because that really is, to me, it's still a dive trip that I talk about with friends. What was it like for you guys? So we, all, all of us, went back there almost at the same time. It was a few years ago, three years ago. Yeah. Just by coincidence, it wasn't organized. It just panned out that way. And two were there at the same time. Yeah, yeah we were there. And I went separate. It's changed a lot. And that was the first remarkable thing. I mean, it's that the development in around Dili, it's gone from a small, barely what you would call a town to actually something that's going to turn into a, a city. And the infrastructure with the roads was completely different. And the one thing I remember from the first trip <laughs> was how bad the roads were. Oh my God. And how bumpy it was and how long it took to drive to the dive sites. More of my memories are around actually the back of these little vans and microlights. And it was so loud. The music. It was loud because of everything, but the music in particular, we were bouncing around with all the tanks and all the gear on these little boards that were on top of the tanks for Three hours one way. Stephanie cannot remember that because you die only you, the dog. You die. <laughs> you die in a row, didn't you? All this my love. You taxi total. Does it total nine times? You hated that. So when we went back, we were like, we've got to go back to that. Was it K twelve? Is that what's it called? Farthest one. K fifty seven. K51 because it was fifty one kilometer. So it's fifty one kilometer drive that it's now on a paved road. And so it took three hours, took about maybe an hour and a half yeah. to get there. And you still have all your rooms and your bank was still okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. although the vehicle we were in was not a full lot better, but we were a bit worried about it yeah. breaking down. But the dive site, we recognized it, although it was so obvious that they were going to build a hotel next to it. Yeah. And that was that's the sad thing. I feel like we were catching the tail end of the untouched the last time yeah so even if we went down there now i don't even know if it's still that site is probably filled with cement trucks well i remember there was one dive site it's somewhere near k51 and you walk along you walk down the shore but once you get into the water and actually you're literally on the edge of the wall did you not go to that site i know what you're talking about no we didn't and you know why we didn't because the current was so strong yeah that's, I know yeah. about even on the second trip, the currents were really strong there, so we didn't do it. Yeah, the problem is when you're diving from the shore, there's no boat, you get swept away. That's it. That's yeah. it. Yeah. And your next stop is Australia. So, yeah. Rob and I went diving at a site called Lone Tree because there was only one tree 10 years ago. And actually now there is no tree anymore, obviously. <laughs> because it was a tree in a massive pebbly, pebbly, pebbly beach. But I took out the photo that I had in my phone and we compared it. Yes. The road was just so, it was a white road and now it's, uh -huh. it's paved. And it was really super cool to see back then and when we were there. Really super nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think that first trip was, I felt like we were breaking new ground. That was definitely an expedition. Yeah, there were some dive shops there, but we were definitely some of the first, we were definitely the first group of divers to come in to do any of it. 
And I think the infrastructure really just barely held together to support us. Yeah. And the, the accommodations, my God, it's just continues. We got lucky we put in the, uh, the upwater. Yeah, those, I think, yeah, those, so those were ex-military or UI, they're UN, yeah. And, they're yeah. just complete concrete, slight style, cheapy bunker type stuff, but it was falling apart. I remember going in, but you had a clean one, whereas it was like cockroach, what was it place? They did that great. Yeah. But at least we had a roof over it. That's been lighted. It was the water. It was fine. I thought it was cleaned up a bit. But yeah, but it was definitely, I think we could only eat at kind of bar area that was right there. I think mm-hmm. I remember eating. Yeah, there was nothing else. We didn't go in. But the second time, there were restaurants, and bars, beachside cafes, and coffee shops. Lots of yeah. coffee. Given it, Timor. We wanted to do that on the second trip is actually go to the other side East Timor, dry up, take a week and up non-diving, drive up over the mountains to the southern coast and see what was there. Yeah, I think that would be the next plan. Yeah. Because there are organized trips in the forest and the coffee plantations and the inside of Timor. So I think next time we'll do a, a week of diving and a week of traveling. It will mm-hmm. be is to explore more about people and traditions and villages. And I'm sure it, <clears throat> the inside of Timor is still pretty rural. I was just wondering that the diving part, you went back. So how was that compared to the first time that we went? I have more better memories of it. I enjoyed it much more. Yeah. First time yeah. it was just, <clears throat> everything was a struggle. <laughs> And I remember the diving, but I feel like the second time we got to actually enjoy the diving as yeah. opposed to all the logistics. I think the first time I was less experienced, number one. And number two, we were supposed to look for our own stuff. So you build up stress, you build up, oh, I need to look for something. I need to find something. The second time we had a guide and yeah, we were doing our own stuff as well. Actually, sometimes we were finding more stuff for him to see than him for us to see. But it was a more relaxing that, way of diving, more, more relaxing. I forgot about it. The first time I remember getting there and they told us there were no guides. Yeah. We all had to go to the dive site too. We had no idea where to go. But the second time we were there, we had an awesome dive guide. He was from Sweden, actually. But I've never had a dive guide so passionate about yeah. diving and marine super cool and just cool. This guy, and he just... Every time we said to him, we want to do more, he's, he was in it because he loved it. And so we just kept a dive after dive and there, yeah, I feel like we saw so much more than the second time. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But it was, it did, it, it, the first trip too, keep in mind, it was like, just to get two dives in was enough to just absolutely exhaust you the whole day. And we were doing three to four dives by the second trip because the logistics were so much easier. Yeah. When we went first time, it, we were literally probably the largest group of divers that gone into the country. Yeah. It, the, all the tanks were spanking new. They practically set up the dive shop, the compression, the everything, purely for that event that we went to. Back then, the UN troops were still on the ground. Yeah, yeah Anthony somehow got himself into a front seat <laughs> of someone else's driver vehicle. Was a UN on there? And then he came to, and then he went, hang on, hang on, let me say that. He went under the pretense that, oh, 
I'm here to do the video and I'm not part of the competition, but I'm going to document the event. You're so right. And the rest of us were what? Stuck in the back of the micro light. Not even talk about the lack of aircon, but more of the back is almost get broken just by going up and down the road. Yeah. So, yeah. And your side of story. Go ahead. I have to sit on a bike truck with UN written on the side. It was a shitload more comfortable. And high suspension, four-wheeler drive, air conditioning, in case of emergency, flares. And you can just... He, and he caught a truck. Like, he said, it happened. And you, and you just drop the back and truck down, and then you just put your tank on and walk in the water. Fantastic. Yeah. But I had the biggest... I mean, come on, I was carrying 15 kilograms of camera gear. We were carrying nothing. Mine was bigger than heavier. Yeah, <laughs> the whole point is everyone else got on the back of the microlite and you somehow sweet talked your way into this lady who had to be your driver the whole time. Okay, no, she was selected to be my guide. And she was called Alex and she's Mexican. She's UN. And then one morning we're all starting out the gear for second morning. And I went, where's my microlite? Oh, Stephanie, she's just gone off. I went, what? So then I said to Alex, I said, I'm with like Smith. He said, I'll just use my car. I'm going, tomorrow we're going to be taking six tanks and all the gear. I said, I'm like, car's probably okay for it. And then she drove right in the corner with a swipe. You know, I'm like, that'll work. But we didn't been the lap of luxury for two days doing all this diving. We're getting wrecked in the micro lights so all the way down and back. And we're like, saucing in. He's like, Bouncing off the walls. Come here, so that, <laughs> right? I remember you being like, you were all getting to the vehicle one morning. I'm like, what are you doing in this? You're like, oh, this is my ride. I'm like, how long have you had this? <laughs> getting angry. I'm like, we've been starting. It was a challenging because, uh, like I said, we had to find out on site, find our own way. And, and also, we had no dive gun, we had no porter, and it was exhausting. I know you guys through South China Diving Club. The time when I dived with you guys, you, you have this specific protocols when you go on your little junk trip every weekend and you pretty much dive all year round, including Christmas. My gosh, how do, I don't know how you do that, but anyway, it's all of you have done that. But now everyone is going to all have dry suits. So you've upgraded to dry suits now. But it gets up through the three or four weeks. Yeah. The safety protocol is a big thing for you guys. And so when you went back diving in Timor-Leste, I'm going back to Timor-Leste because it really is still very under development and the whole thing, the dive industry is still new and the diving there really is a bit of novelty because you really need to be pretty advanced diver or experienced diver to be able to go there and then stay safe. So when you go back and then when you interact with all the dive shops, what do you look for? What are the key things you actually have to ask before you do any of these types of trips? Is there a recompression chamber anywhere in the region? And the answer for Timor, they says no. No, it's true. It's Australia, which is obviously another country that's a good airplane right away. So you have to think about all your diving in terms of self-sufficiency and minimizing those risks. So that basically made sure that we weren't doing any deep diving. And what we'd say deep was below 30 meters. 20 meters. Yeah. And just keep it at that. And then it was a bit of a gamble when we showed up to figure out 
what this dive shop was going to offer. And I think we were just prepared for the worst, the basics of this. But they actually ended up, they were a German couple that ran it. English. Oh, they're English. Sorry. Yeah. But they, uh, easy mistake to make. Sure. Because it's <laughs> Anyway, Dan, quite a big experience. But I think the real thing that made us very comfortable was the dive guide who was excellent and kept everything in order. We had our own gears. The only thing we were relying on the, were the tanks and the air and the jacks. And they had the same uh, expectations as us around that. So that was pretty, pretty clear. I think the only kind of iffy part was the vehicle. Yeah. Which right. was a van, like one of these high ace vans that all caused, but it was really small in the car. They did the, the actual, the rear hatch had to be tied down. Yeah. And we have all these tanks in the back, so they could fall out. And we just packed ourselves and all the tanks in. And I just kept repeating like, there's, <laughs> I hope we don't have to stop fast. Yeah. Because it's going to go out a little That one <laughs> kind of sketchy part of that was, it was going down the uh, ramps way of the k k47 though yeah it was just hitting bumps here and there and wobbling but yeah yeah it made it yeah again beyond that like in terms of safety because we know we're very self-sufficient in that we know how to manage ourselves how to buddy dive what to expect when to call a dive when we know that we don't have the proper equipment but recognizing certain things like we are pretty far away from hospital if one of us gets into from it's still even on the second trip that was a good a good hour long drive don't expect anybody to help you so yeah, you have to accept those risks but do it but you just change your diving to make it a bit safer not so deep falling in if there's too strong current else well we dive with travel insurance as well oh, oh, yeah. we dive in insurance and then being based in australia it's an hour flight from timor to darwin so yeah there would be evacuation that is quite quick if we want to put it in that way quick have a sense of like same day you still gotta get to the airport make sure there's a plane there like evacuate yeah yeah fly so they were really well run and organized and they're very helpful. So I was never worried once we got there. Yeah. Out of way. How about house was amazing. How our room was really good. Yeah. The schedule, we could set up our own schedule yep. and the food was good. Yep. Nothing come for free. You have to pay for everything, but still we had a lot of flexibility, yeah. a lot of flexibility. Good, so good. it was good. But I, I got to clarify just anybody listening to this, that our standards for accommodation is very low, very low. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's right. What's your minimum requirement when you go on a diving trip? Get clean bait and cleanish room. Doesn't have to be super clean, but cleanish. And it's good if it, there's hot water, but it's not a requirement. No. It depends who you are. But also, who's that kind? Power sockets. Oh, yeah. yeah. What's a power? It doesn't go off. Right. Power sockets. Charge batteries while you're overnight or while you're out diving. They don't shut off the power. Aircon, that was what was happening. Not necessarily. Aircon, that'd be amazing to be Yeah, that's true. But we found some places that had nice, breezy bungalows. Mm. The band, I'd say fundamentally then just the ability to run our own show and not get tripped up by other divers. I think it's not that we don't like other divers. It's you just don't want them getting you know, our weight. And at the same time, it is troubling to be on sharing a dive resort or accommodation or boat 
with people who don't have the same sort of respect for the environment, for safety, for procedure, experience. And so I think we almost always separate or distance ourselves from those people that we ever encounter. Essentially, we discover people do have the same like-mindedness of us and we incorporate them into our group, but it's rare. It's troubling when we watch other divers with poor finning skills that are just doing a nice rating action over the reef that they pick things up and touch them, push, and it's just for us, it's all about the watching and seeing, but don't touch. I remember one trip, I can't remember where I know, but we had this other group that was also at the resort and they're on the, on and off the boat with us. We just were all cringing watching them dive. And the, we saw them at the airport later on and all the men who had not been diving with full wetsuits and the big guys had fire coral burns up and down their legs. And we're all like, cause we all saw them underwater, just like up and pressed up against the coral and doing stuff that we would never do, never touch it. But they were paying the penalty for badly too. So we did a dive to Tamal Townswood and we just took on board. There was so many of us, there's 20 something. And we took over the resort and the guy that was running is a technical diver. So we had to run up the resort and the boats and they didn't have to worry about us because they knew what we were like. You just go off and do whatever dives. Yeah. No, we said we got the local dives, dives schedule with them for everybody. Yeah. Everybody was happy. We've done that a few times, but that's what the club can do. As a group, we can get 20 people together and make a trip. Yeah. You get discounted. You've got a better understanding with resorts. You can control your diving much more easily. Yeah, I want to chat a bit more about the influence of the club. There were many things that like aside the social aspect, the diving bit, but I think there's the ongoing trainings. They got more experienced divers providing training to help others. And everything is voluntary based. Those are anchoring in people some really good safe diving practice. So I think each one of you has been the chairman of the club at one point or another. Uh, well, except for Alex, he's the only one who just said, no, I'm not interested in it. Just tell me out. <laughs> but I'll be there every person for doing. Just do it. <laughs> Can you guys share a bit more about the, the kind of culture that will make this club so endearing? Yeah, it's spot on. It's all volunteers. So the only thing, the only things get done are things that people want to do. And that changes the whole move. Nobody's forced to do anything, but everybody wants to do diving. And so having that volunteerism as the driver changed dynamics entirely, but it also means that sometimes you can't do things that you want to do because there's nobody there to it. But it does means we set an expectation that you give as much as you take. And I think for the most part, everybody enjoys the club kind of sticks to that. There's also this willingness to do stuff to help other people. And when people join the club, they see that. And that kind of acts as a booster for them to go, okay, I'd like to help too. That is a self-generating thing. So people, you get that kind of form, a natural thing you have to it well, because people have set an example and people follow that example. Willing. But if you're called to do something you don't want to do, then it just becomes chores, a chore, and instead of enjoying it. And what I think I've seen in the last few years is that the load has been spread out more evenly. And so 
one or two people are doing something that immediately attracts two or three other people to help. And that ameliorates the, any kind of pressure and people have someone to look to or someone to help to get things to where they need to be. What I like to say is that being part of the club is being part of a certain mindset. And people, when they join the club, they have to join the mindset. That's why it's difficult to find people who see us not to be as a dash of people to the shop. You get, you pay what you get for. It's very transactional. Yeah. It's very materialistic. Whereas being part of the club, it's a commitment. It's having fun, going diving, get something out of the club. No doubt about it. And I've always said, we put a lot into it and the club should give us something back, but it's also putting something into the club. It's not just enjoy the club and get stuff out of it. Free rides and nice diving and nice company and social. It's just a mindset. It's completely different mindset than, than a dive shop. And if you're willing to do it, that's okay. And I have to say that nowadays it's difficult to find young people who join us because young people sometimes are not willing to compromise what they want to get or they don't want to put into they don't want to commit too much. They want to get something out of something. They're very um, transactional yeah. expectations. They expect, I pay this, I get them out. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, they see us as a service provider. Right. Nowadays, not just some people, but I think that sense of instant gratification yeah. is what lots of people are like chasing after and that they feel that satisfying, even though it's only like very short lived, unsustainable. But I think the other element which we didn't actually mention is that the whole entire diving practice and curriculum, you have instructors training and people, even for a non-diver, if they want to become a diver, they can actually join the club. And then, and you're following BSAC. Andy, you've been in Hong Kong for the longest out of the three of you, right? Yeah. Wait, but you said 25 years. Okay. So the, 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 the club, I mean, so the club come before you? No, the club has been around for... 40 plus years. Yeah. So the club came before you. Yeah. It's 79. For the benefit of the listener, could you share a bit more about the ethos of BSAC and how that's compared to other agencies? Rob mentioned earlier, sometimes you get a bit nervous when you go diving and you meet other divers who don't share the same culture, mindset and practice. And there's a very distinct culture in this club and people who dive with you guys if they like it, they stick with you, they practice it. So BSAC in the UK, I had a good number of years in the UK, let it dive. BSAC's all about being self-sufficient. And BSAC is always about being a club. And that club is everything we've just described. Everybody pitches in, everybody helps. Most clubs have a boat or even two boats. So you'll have people who drive and they'll have a, a tow hook on their car so they can specifically drive the boats to the dive sites. So for instance, I was based in London. We would drive the South Coast every second weekend. And somebody else would be organizing the accommodation. Somebody else is organizing the training. Somebody's looking after the beach we were set up. And every weekend's diving was like an expedition. And that's what BSAC is in the UK. So when I first arrived, there were three BSAC clubs in Hong Kong. And the difference between UK and BSAC international B-side is that especially for Hong Kong, you have such a throughput of people. People come on professional contracts here for two years, maybe three, maybe one just give them five years. Whereas in the UK, the B-side club is in an area where people live. 
And so you have the same people in the club for 20 years, 30 years, whatever. So Hong Kong, we had to figure out ways of maintaining that same kind of approach, but with such a fast throughput of people. And so we have a hybrid of not being a, we're the dive club, the dive shop, but we're not because it's all about caring, sharing, involvement, being in a club that happens to dump. There's always that class of the year, like we're a drinking club that has to go diving around, I guess. And it's how do you maintain that? And how do you keep attracting people to the club? And that everything you do, you're doing for, because you love training people. But you spend a year of training someone and then six months later, they leave. And there's a lot of thinking at one time, that's terrible, what waste resources. It's not because that person has definitely benefited from that training. And the person who's instructing them has benefited from that training because they're training them, they're teaching, and it's all good practice. It's finding, whereas in the UK, that person would probably be in the club for the next five, six, 10 years. And then they would have all that time to develop all become trainers themselves and then pass the baton to, to the next people. And that had happened in Hong Kong because all of us have been here for 20 plus years and a few other people as well. But that's more luck than judgment or trying to do that. So I guess we're maybe just a bit lucky and maybe a bit unusual that we've actually managed to make the tips for it. I think we, we set up in the mission of the club a key element, which is to promote that. And when you look at it from that perspective, we're not there to money. We're not there to do anything in particular. We are there to make sure that everybody that comes through becomes a better diver, regardless if they're there for six months or us over 20 years. We're the cornerstones of the club, but we acknowledge that we've done a lot of churn people, but I don't think there's a single person who's ever left the club and felt that they didn't feel like they were losing something. Well, no, they, 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 they benefited so much and it changed their diving so much in positive ways that they were sad to leave Hong Kong because they were leaving the dive club. But the dive club becomes such an integral part of your personal life and everything, the caring that the club has for everybody who kind of walks in the door and commits to it, the club commits to them. Even if we literally people, some would stay for six months and that's it, but just yeah. absolutely loved it. As what you said before, the divers malpractice underwater is nothing to do with the agency that they train with. It's, it's just personal unawareness that something else beyond them exists. Because, yeah, you can be trained by Paddy, Naui, Bizak, and you can still be a bad diver. No doubt about it. Or you can still be an excellent diver. There is a very nice research that has been done in the past two years during the pandemic by WWF Hong Kong about the damage of corals in Hong Kong due to divers and has spiked up about 70% because people couldn't fly. So there are more diving, diving boats, there are more divers around. And that malpractice is not something that divers are born with. It's, it's something that they just do it because they're unaware that if you kick a coral, you probably damage 50, 100 years old piece of carbon with some animals inside and they don't care about it. They don't even, they don't even give any meaning to that. Whereas being part of the club, if you kick it once, you get told off. If you kick it twice, so you get told off again and until you learn the lesson. And this is the difference again between a club and a shop. In the shop, the day after you're gone, bye-bye. You don't come back anymore. 
in the club, you get reinforced with some practices, not only safety, but also environmental awareness and all that. Because we don't have any kind of profit loop, whereas a tidy school is all about profit. And so they will blur the line. We don't want to insult people because we'll get a bad review and then that'll lose us people through the door. So if somebody gets a bit corny, they won't do much about it. And that's a tragedy for the rich that they're visiting because that's what their landlord depends on. So they should police it much harder and they should be able to say to people, if you do that again, you're not coming in the door tomorrow. But they won't because they will lose money. Yeah, I've died with you guys and trained under Lowy and so feeling skill is the number one thing that we all have to master and buoyancy, neutral buoyancy. And I, I think a lot of people have gone into diving. It's a bit like a holiday thing. Oh, I go and learn diving and that's it. I think it's quite important that people, like Alex did say, it's just really is due to the lack of awareness that they've not been educated about how you should try your best to maintain your buoyancy and why it's so important. It's a continuing education. And to be honest, I think the people who continue to dive and are still diving, until they die, it's because it's all driven by the passion. And you guys getting that club going, I think it's all boiled down to the passion for diving. Yeah, well, so, if you don't die that soon, you about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Obviously, I'm not talking about like tomorrow. We've got a standard of excellence that we all share and know exactly what it is. And people that come into the club, they start to see it because it's in each of us and we start to train them through informally or even through formal training and they get it and we bring them up to that level. And for me, I've been diving for, before I joined the club 15 years, came in and just had to start over <laughs> basically, but was retrained, broke old habits, saw what the level of excellence was around buoyancy, thinning and trim and all that. And anybody who joins the club can see that when they walk in and you immediately want it. Just really, even when they give them the jump for the first time and they watch club members put their gears together and just starting things out and where hoses go and how things are clipped off. Cause it's just what people have been doing for a long time. And, it, and I think we don't stop it. Oh yeah, we've got that. I'm just perfect. It's oh, <laughs> I can change that. That would be better. If that was a little bit longer, put this off here, I could find this. And so people are constantly learning and constantly updating what he's doing because everybody's training all the time in their head. So it's not like, yeah, I've got a good occasion. I'm a superstar on earth. It's okay. That got me that skill level. Now I need to develop here. That was something else. I think I prepared for each dive. I spent at least an hour at home. I'm sure you guys, we don't do it all at time. Just an hour. Yeah, <laughs> an hour of just putting my kit together and checking it, but I'll sit there on the floor in my house with everything spread apart, taking apart, trimming little things and getting a piece of bungee a little bit shorter or longer, finding some, a better place for my torch to be. I mean, it is constant. It's, it's never ending. There's always something to tweak. And when you find the perfect spot after searching for years. And you realize the torch shouldn't go on the side. It goes back here better. And you're like, I figured it out. Yes. And you're like, this is awesome. And it's awesome for the next three weeks. And you go in there and you're like, you could be better. Then your torch dies. You have a torch and all that starts over. But it's constant. But it's enjoyable. It's meditative. Just get there and just focus on it. Again, a lot of people like 
always ask us like, should I own my own kit? I'm like, hell yeah. You'll know it, you'll learn it. And it's what's saving your life really. But you get to spend that time with it. That's the most important. Instead of just giving it back to the dive shop and hoping the next one that's given to you at work. <laughs> What about you, Alex? Do you go through similar rituals before you go diving? I'm not that super nerd, but <laughs> nerd plus. Yeah. Um, in denial. Okay, Alex, it's fine. It's okay. I have my moments. So I have moments when I pack my bag today to go diving. I go diving, come back tomorrow, drive my stuff, pack it, and don't open it again until the next dive. Or sometimes I go through periods when I undo the bag, I undo all the straps, all the bungees, everything, and put them back together. And yeah, I don't do it regularly, but I go through these moments of nerdiness that when well, they can't see in this window of what's around us, which <laughs> is nerd central. It's nerd, nerdy day. Everything in here is connected by Bluetooth. <laughs> everything. And he's so beyond us. Do you consider yourself having a bit of OCD when it comes to diving? Oh, very OCD. OCD? Yeah. Oh, no doubt about it. What's OCD? <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to see different extremes here, actually. OCD. <laughs> On the Alex side. And then, and these. <laughs> You're just a disorder. You dive on Regretha, right? Yeah. So how can you be sitting on the scale of disorder? That's why all his equipment floods all the time. If it was OCD, it wouldn't flood. I am OCD. Describe your OCD to us. He's got me OCD. Orderly chaos department, whatever. So you need breather, diver. You have to be thinking about it all the time. I do, I dream about rebreathing, even when I'm spending three months rebreathing. And in fact, here we go. Change question, Stephanie. We're going to go down. I'm getting it. No, forgive you. I'm just about it. I'm just about it. Okay. So I recently went back to Bali and did the GUE fundamental course just to keep up with my own personal training. Did you enjoy the fundamentals or did you think this is a bit too much? Well, you guys were talking about tweaking with your gear and everything and then the constant change. So one thing that requires that you have exactly the same setup. You have your uh, compass on your left arm, your dive computer on the right arm. And that was one change for me. I'm used to wearing the watch on my left. So I would have my dive computer on my left arm. And then because of the training, it makes total sense if I need to dump gas and the dump gas bit is on my left hand side. And it's a uh, having my dive computer on my right makes sense. They have this uh, requirement that you always have backup light and you have this on two sides of the straps and the safety check protocol, body check protocol. It is another level of OCD compared to what you guys do in the club because you already go through pretty rigid procedure that you literally look at your body and you go through your sets out with your body. So even though you are wearing different gear, but you would know how to work with your body in gear in case of emergency. And then Sui's philosophy was that they actually do away with that layer. So you should know what your body has, and then you will know exactly what to do instead of trying to learn it just before you go down diving together. Because because everyone dives exactly the same way with exactly yes. Yeah. Yeah, in a way, it's, it's, I, I think that kind of trimming your, what well, not trimming, so streamlining your set out 
that I, I really like. And then that was a good one. That was great. I was very fortunate. My instructors, he's more like a contemporary instructor. So he's not like the kind of GUE reputation that everybody heard of in the market, that they felt that they're the elite diver of the world. To me, any diver to be called and considered as elite would be the SEAL Navy guys. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely diving. Yeah. <laughs> That's the other thing you got to realize there are different types of GOE is a great recreational system to keep you advanced recreation. And all those are like perfect, wonderful habits. It also breaks old habits. So I think in general, it's a very well-respected course at worth it, but it comes from the cave dive yeah, system. And so what is the best of it? So I'm almost being a little bit see where they're coming from and see what's relevant without people up and beat people over the head saying, it's the only way to do it. There are lots of different ways you can still do it safely. Yeah. But it, you come away with some principles that yeah. are very useful and very important, like keeping streamlined, no gear flapping around, yeah. consistency, using backups, the right types of backups, all that kind of stuff is so important. When you're diving yeah, and yeah. they do teach that and they teach it in a very specific way. You can apply that, but then depending on what you're actually. So look at educating people how to adapt equipment for a particular dive. It's not going, this is the only way to wear the torch because you might have a different torch, you might be a different weight. You might have three because you're doing an extended dive. So it's about teaching people to think for themselves that they'd be able to do their own risk assessment for every bit of equipment and why do you think it's necessary? Where it should take It should be much more about think for yourself. Why are you doing this? How are you doing it? How could it be best? I think the other takeaway for me was literally give me more different idea about how I'm going to teach diving as well. Like one of the things I really would love to do for my family is to teach all my nephews to scuba dive. So from the age 10, start oh, scuba diving. Just your nephews, what about your nieces? Actually, I don't have nieces in our family. <laughs> so they will be taught to die using wing BCD rather than the stable jacket version that everybody see in the time shop. We love wings because they're modular. It makes make them nest depending on what dive you're doing. With the BCD, that's it. Yeah. Okay. I do have questions for you guys too. Answer, which I ask every guest that comes on to the show. First one, and uh, diving trip. You have wet bag and dry bag. So, what are the top three items that you will always carry with you in dry bag? Dry bag. Yeah, dry. No, okay. Phones and phones. sunglasses and a hat. I have a book and uh, headphones. Okay, very practical. And the book just to keep yourself occupied or stay away from these two rowdy people? No, when we go on the boat, I always think that some piece of equipment may fail. So what do I do for the rest of the day? I read a book and listen to music. Nice one. Okay, the next Phone, headphones and food. Okay. Sunblock, sunglasses. Are you sure? Final answer, last challenge. Can we lock that in there? Okay, number two. What are the three top tips that you would give on the safe diving practice? Should we give one tip each? Yeah, one tip each, please. And you see all that sit there and ponder, my gosh. <laughs> that is scary, huh? That is very <laughs> scary. That's very scary. It's a really long pause. 
It's evil because it's not just one answer. We have a lot of things together. I got one answer. Dan, have insurance before you go on a diving trip. Make sure you're covered. Good physical condition. Okay, can you elaborate a bit more? But he's in good physical condition so they can rescue you. <laughs> yeah, be smart means be smart. <laughs> you don't want any to be your dive buddy. No. <laughs> oh, when he is your dive buddy, you don't see him. He disappears. Yeah. yeah. No, it's not dive. true. Totally true. Totally. <laughs> Next question. So, what is your greatest fear? Fear? Diving fear? Or any fear? Any. What's your greatest fear? That's a bit psychological. Why are you negotiating with me? This is just a standard question I ask. That's easy. No fear for me. My fear simply is that I forgot the key piece of equipment and I can't go dive. Like a mess. <laughs> Have you ever done that? Yeah. We forget stuff every time. Yeah. You could be out on a dive boat. You don't have a best. That's it. Everybody else is diving and you're reading a book. For all the listeners out there who are not divers, who are thinking, why are they not saying you're drowning? And it's like, yeah. just never occurs. No. Never. It's just, I think we know our gear kit and the tanks and everything so well that the biggest danger we have is actually like probably be hit by a boat as opposed to actually drown. Yeah. Getting stuck on a net. That is not a fear. You don't have a fear of being stuck in a net. I think, Alex, when you say you have no fear, that's probably more in the context of diving, right? Because it's not that you literally have no fear. If you literally have that, we really need to put you through the neuroscience study subject. And I think it's more of a reflection of the fact that you, in diving particularly, you would have got yourself pretty well prepared and through all the experiences and training that you would have kind of train yourself to the point where whatever unexpected scenario happens, you would probably most likely do your best to stay calm. Yeah, of course. I remember multiple times to say, oh shit, something may happen. And then you recompose yourself, you calm down. And it's also partially the nature of my job that if you panic, something bad is going to happen. So I don't have the luxury of panicking. So you come down close your eyes, your and then uh, take a breath and solve the problem. Few times I remember being in a situation of saying, okay, come down and mm-hmm. then sort yourself out. And then everything is okay. Such a key part about a diving career though, is that you <laughs> gradually increase the difficulty level at a pace that you're comfortable with. So then you do have these moments when you are challenged and then you don't panic. You figure it out and you move on. And then that allows you to have more confidence and then you work. It's the people who just rush into dip using things like rebreathers, for example, without all that history of experience, that's dangerous. But I think that is what a diving career is. It's just a series of challenges that you've overcome that were just a stretch to get you a little bit further. I remember getting caught down current one time. It was really crazy. And I fought it. And I got up and I was almost out of air and I thought, oh God, how does people, and then somebody's like, you just go to the site. And I didn't even think of that. Alex, you were saying earlier, because of your job, you're a vet. 
And I, actually, I don't understand why as a vet you need to stay calm. I'm just dealing with fluffy animals all the no, time. When you're doing a surgery, yeah, okay. something unexpected happen, the patient is dead. So it don't come down and you don't think clearly. If you don't troubleshoot the problem with a clear mind, that's it, it's gone. And a lot of students, a lot of people actually just get caught into this panic spiral spiral and say, Hey, come down, troubleshoot the problem step-by-step. And it's exactly the same for that. Exactly the same for that. Last year we organized a, a deep dive, right? At 30 meters. I got caught twice in lines because a lot of people were going, how the day was organized. People were reeling off, go to 40, come back and go up. And there were a lot of lines that were crisscrossing each other. And I got caught with my feet to one or two or three of the lines that were all in parallel. And I thought, oh, okay. Zero visibility, 30 meters. My body was next to me, but I couldn't see, and he couldn't see me, and he couldn't but see my feet. It was just too bad. And, not looking. and it, in that moment, if you panic, and then I thought about it, and I says, okay, so what do I do now? Shall I panic or shall I not? And then you come down, you call your body, and then you try to explain what the problem is, and then you move on. So it's just a psychological, a mental problem, a mental issue. Approach. Approach. It's a very morbid view, but very practical that in diving, if you literally die with a full tank of air, you clearly panicked and died from panicking. But if you are found dead with an empty tank of air, basically means that you did everything you could to try to get out of that situation. And that was the best you could do. And you didn't panic. So it's a terrible way of looking well, but it goes back to that concept. You should always calm yourself down, figure out what to do next, and then try that. Most inexperienced divers in realities have full tanks of air because they forgot that you're on their air. That's probably number one cause of fatalities underwater. Drop the rag and they can't find it. Yep. And I haven't got a necklace. That's stupid. <laughs> That's really simple. Straight forward. So, next question. What is your greatest extravagance? Oh, my snorkel. I paid $700 for that stuff. <laughs> okay. That's so I never use it though. I'm scared of losing. I bought one. It was 1200 old gold. Yeah. And it's a double snorkel. Oh. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I've used it nearly three times. Because I've used my twice. Because... You're too scared of losing it, or doesn't work as well as you expected? You have to attitude. Yeah. It's a sick to be It is a so complicated. It's, to be fair, it's meant for high-intensity swimming pool treatment. I thought, oh, that'll be funny. I'll try that. And I did. And I tried it again, and I went, nope, it's not getting better. Mine has no fact that it's really cool. It's going to be just, all the water purges out. Awesome. And it's the same color as my mask. Important. Because that's one of the fundamental things about me and the diver. Color coordination. But I'm going on it. When I don't die, you're just snorkel. That's the fun part. Nobody does with the snorkel. Moving away from the mask and snorkel. The next question. What do you value most in your friend? I don't have friends. 
Look at this. Problem solved. <laughs> Trust. Exactly. That's why you don't die with him. I trusted him. That, that's why I'm dying on my own. He's, I, he, that's why I trust his I know exactly what he's up to. I'm really beating up. But we actually know each other exactly what we're up to as well. That's important. But that's probably a better answer is like consistency because underwater, I know exactly where everybody is. I know exactly that you're not going to be with me. But I generally know the direction you went. I know exactly where Alex is. I never have to look around. I know exactly where he is. So having that type of understanding as buddies underwater is awesome. Mixed dives so much better. I'm more, much more relaxed. Oh, much more relaxed. Because if you don't look where I'm in the general direction, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be there like that. You'll eat something for 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. So if you haven't seen me for five minutes, you go over and okay, then you go back to whatever you do. Come back another five minutes. We all find it hard to dive with a new buddy for the first time. Yeah, because you don't, you just always try to, where are they? You find out they're above you, like, uh, why are you there? I'm here. <laughs> all right. The last question, I'm hesitating, but I will ask you just to see what comes out. If we swap seats that you're the host of the podcast and I'm the interviewee, what question would you have for me to answer? What are you doing this for? <laughs> that's why you are there and we're here because we don't know what we would say it doesn't have to be diving related right no it doesn't okay if i'm not wrong you are a lawyer by training is that correct yes yes careful how you answer this now and then you left i remember you telling me that you were leaving your job and you were doing something completely different. Probably that's why you're doing this. What is the purpose of your life? What is of my life? Yeah. <laughs> you went from a very specific field into a, you were doing also meditation stuff or? And the wellness now. So you went to different completely things. It's a good question. As you say, I'm lawyer by training. I was working in the bank and finance and I'm still attached to the finance investment side of our work, but outside the bank environment. But I think the other aspects of it is the fact that, and which is also why diving is so important to me, is to be able to create space for yourself so you can realign your mind and body. In a way, stress management. But I think it's more of the mental management. Like what do you do to allow yourself that um, just be able to step away from a situation and then take a break from it. When you go back in, you start to see things from another perspective. And so I think the other thing, which I also do a lot is meditation, mindfulness, all of this are very relevant and very important. I've always been doing that alongside with my corporate job. My corporate job, stressful. A lot of time is about firefighting. You could easily be pulled in hundred different directions at the same time. But again, how to deal with it, you have to stay calm. You have to stay centered. We talk a lot about earlier dealing with the fear and the unexpected situations. The first thing is do whatever you can to stay calm and then to work out how to troubleshoot. And I think being in the corporate, there's a very clear mental disconnection because people perceive that the practice of meditation is all that kind of spiritual. And then they should be kept outside the corporate environment, not connecting the two. But to me, 
I could do my corporate job better because I have other stuff in life that kept maintaining me and grounding me. So scuba diving is actually one of them. Maintaining the balance. Yeah, maintaining the balance. I think Rob, you're also in corporate, right? So you could also relate to that. Yeah. So I've been kept me sane throughout COVID. I need to go out on Sunday or Saturday underwater just to tune out and go back to what's real, which is watching fish. Doesn't get mm-hmm. in there. And you're right, it absolutely centers you clears your head and you go back in on Monday morning with cuts and bruises and nicks and scratches and remembering what real life is like. And then you can make better decisions. And yeah, no, it's true. But it's essential. Absolutely essential. I need to go out there. And from a wellness point of view, going into a completely different environment underwater just helps everybody slow down in the center and start realizing there's other things going on as well. That whole mind-boggling circuits around you doesn't exist for the day that you do it. I mean, for, certainly for the two hours that you spend on the water. And that is a great way to just to get people to slow down, literally take a breath and go, there are other things that are more important. You have been listening to Surface Time, Confessions of a Diving Junkie. My guests today were the men fixture, <clears throat> correction, cornerstones of South China Diving Club, Rob Christie, Alice Grioni, and Andy Nguyen. Behind all the banters, their friendships have been forged and deepened over the years through their shared passion for scuba diving and the engagement in the club from running the training to leading dives, and naturally socialising with one another on their weekly Thursday club night. The club has been, and still is, a delightful place to meet other like-minded people. If you live in Hong Kong or are visiting Hong Kong and want to meet them, just go to Aberdeen Boat Club. That is the building right next to Aberdeen Marina Club on the Thursday night. You will definitely be greeted and welcomed warmly by the club members. So go and connect with them. Surface Time is executively produced by Noetic Production and music by Dress Studio. 